My name is Carmel Wallace and Air and Earth began its journey in 1998. So it did come as a shock to the sisters because I was on the leadership team at the time and um, sat down and wrote the document and presented it to them. them. (laughs) But what was interesting was when we presented the first document to all of the sisters gathered who were getting ready for a chapter, we took into account what they said and then rewrote it. And that was the one that was given to them for the chapter. And we asked in the period between the writing of the documents, whether we could continue to consult with all sort of groups around to make sure that we were more or less on the right track. So that's when we um, met with Peter Dale, who was mayor at the time. We um, had a long conversation with Sean McGee, who was environment officer, and she came in and she looked at these... Two women in their middle 50s and I guess she thought, what on earth? And so she went to back to her office and came and presented us with a sheet of 32 names and she said, I would suggest you don't reinvent the wheel. These are the people who are already doing things around Wagga. Talk to them first. So then you went and talked And what to happened them. was they became mates. Ah. And it was really with their help that we continued the journey and probably the most useful part of that was we set up a task force and um, they were people tied up with the environmental ed field studies group that provided environmental education for the departmental schools. Liz Madden at the time, I remember. And anyway, with that group of five, they said, we need to have a dinner Mm. for the stakeholders of Wagga. And it was out of that that we circulated all the people on city council, people in education at um, tertiary, secondary and primary level, uh, the welfare groups like Vinnie's and Salvo's and those, and business people because we had no money. And to our utter amazement, 76 replied. And so down in what is now the Heritage Centre here, up at part of the old convent, which was the old community room, we had a finger food dinner. And then people broke up into groups. Um, Deb Slinger and Liz Madden facilitated the evening and we dreamt the use of the site. Jim Webb was a very prominent member of that group and good friend of ours at the time. And it was out of that that the Air and Earth design was formulated. So it came really from, I love that comment that you said you you dreamt the idea. Can you, like, that's a beautiful expression. Can you... Expand on that? How do you dream an idea? Oh, we knew the time was ripe for some sort of environmental education. The only piece of land we could think of would be that piece of land over there that was tennis courts and the waste, the tip area of the site. The sisters suggested other places out at San Isidore. Mm. 
the beauty of that site was that we had so many education facilities around. Like there was Wagga High, there was Mount Erin High School at the time. I think we calculated there were four different schools all Mm. within that area. Mm. We had all these thoughts, but we wanted to see what the people of Wagga would come up with. And what did the people of Wagga tell you? Almost exactly what we were going to do. (laughs) It was hilarious. Break them up into groups. And the big thing was let's have a place where we teach people skills of living sustainably, practical skills like how to grow veggies. And back then in those days, people didn't grow veggies much. The 1990s, there was a whole shift happening in consciousness within the Catholic framework, which I belonged to. There was a book written by an Irishman by the name, it was an Irish Columban by the name of Sean, Sean McDonough. And it was called The Greening of the Church. The other thing that had happened is Pope John Paul II had written quite a bit on the importance of respect for the environment and the disaster that we were facing. He used that those words. Mm. That was the time when he pulled together the leaders of all different religions throughout the world and brought them to Assisi. And in Assisi, they all went off to different places to pray for peace in the world. That was a powerful statement. And then all those leaders of different faiths came together for prayer. Did this serve to help awaken in you this concept of ecological justice or is this something that you... it was always there. I came of a family of farmers and gardeners. I started growing tomatoes in the backyard of Mount Erin. I used to make a lot of compost and it started to dawn on me that this wasn't a hobby. It was something that was at the core of my spirituality. And then... I started to do, I did a permaculture design course and that blew me away. And I discovered that these things that were coming out of the Catholic Church, these trends, were universal. The permaculture people were just fabulous. Mm. It was also the time of the Rainbow Warrior. Um, I became a member of Greenpeace. So when was the Rainbow Warrior again? Oh, 92? Early 90s? Yeah. Early 90s? Yeah. So this was also happening to me when I was coming to the end of the type of adult education that I was doing. I was living in Sydney at Dremoyne. Dremoyne Council was running environmental courses. Yes. So I started doing that. And then the EPA or the Environmental Protection Authority, they were running a whole series of courses. So I... I did all those courses and I knew it was in the air. Then I had a good yarn to Kay about it all. We were sharing, where do we go? Here we are, we're 56 years old. Um, We'd both been together in the novitiate and we'd been good friends right Ah, through for for nearly 50 years. Ah. And... And was Kay in Dremoyne as well? No, Kay was in Canberra. Yeah, and uh, we would meet up every so often for a weekend. 
And she said, look, I'm beginning to think I need to do something too. And I said, look, I've got the ideas and I can, I have the know-how in terms of plants and biodiversity and all of that, but you've got the administrative side. I'm a dreamer. She's practical. And she said, "Um, why don't we do it together? And so that's how we put it together. Can you give a description for all of the listeners, please, of what, well, you've told me about your personal journey, but, but can you tell us in your own words, what is ecological justice? The word eco may, comes from the Greek oikos, which means home. And the root of justice coming out of the Hebrew world is right relationship. And because I was a presentation sister, uh, social justice was a really big thing because Nano Nagel was on a, our foundress in Ireland back in the 1700s. She became an educator so that she could raise the Irish out of poverty. And social justice or right relationship between people was at the core of who we were as presentation sisters. But ecological justice stretches that to a right relationship between the soil, the water, the air and the whole world of biodiversity and humans. So humans are no longer at the top of the pyramid. We're part of this whole web of life. And that's a big shift. That's quite, that would have been really revolutionary when you... It was a bit scary. When you were developing it. Yes, because it was very clear that there was this... I remember teaching the triangle um, where you've got God at the top and then you've got what they call... Oh, then it was man, woman, child, animal, plant, rock. And someone calls it the person, poodle, peach, pebble triangle. So you effectively, ecological justice turns the triangle around. Turns it into a web of life of which the human is a species within the web of life. Right. No longer this dominant, well, you wouldn't hardly even use the word creature. We, and we had total control. So where does God sit in the web? Is that entity part of the web of, of life? Yes, and that's the really big question at the moment because what's happened It's happening for the whole of the human race in this last century. Because of science, our whole cosmologies are shifting. And I think that is fundamental to the shift in respect for the environment. It's a cosmological shift that's taking place. And also... Human beings had particularly become very disconnected because majority are now urban. Although I'm fascinated at the moment since COVID, everybody's getting pets. Yes, that's when I got my dog. I I find that fascinating. (laughs) 
there's and, and that's something deeper than just a thing that happened. Mm. So with that disconnection mm. and this, yeah, we've got to understand Earth as a community of life rather than a resource to be used. So going back to the foundations of Air and Earth, was the idea of building a community of life, is this what Air and Earth is? Is mm. this the initial, yes? Yes, I think so. So so in the early days, you and Kay discussed building this community of life. You, you, you've talked about how, well, you, you talked about how you engaged the community to do that and how you came up with it. So tell me, how did you and Kay get from a few discussions in Canberra and Sydney when you met up to making it happen? First of all, we visited all these different groups that were involved with environmental mm. issues. And at the time here in Wagga, there was a vibrant urban salinity land care group. There, were, there was a native plant group, Riverina Permaculture, um, the Riverina Field Studies Centre, uh, Wagga City Council had an environment officer and that was... I think that was Tony Hepworth back at that stage. And he would convene every month all the people engaged in environmental issues to come and share their stories mm. each mm. month. It's interesting that most of that has now faded. It's, mm. Most of it's died out. But this is the late 90s, early 2000s. But to reflect on that, surely it should be more prominent now. Than 20 years ago. Why What's has... happened now is it's moved more into climate change, mm. which is wonderful. But climate change is a symptom, a cosmology that sees us as a community of life that is inter interdependent is the underpinning spirituality. So when you took this um, idea in this presentation to the, is it called a... To the uh, sisters. To the sisters. What was their reaction? <laughs> I was on the leadership team of the congregation at the time and I remember giving the document to them. I hadn't given them much warning about what was coming. So they did get a shock and Maureen, who was a great friend of mine, her reaction was, you know, you won't be able to have chooks in town. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I laugh about it now. And, that um, was her own, that was her first statement. Uh, it was just, I think, shock. Um, but then I talked with them and then Kay and I were given the leeway to talk to all other mm. groups, like visiting Peter Dale, meeting mm. Sean McGee and all of those people Because you involved. have to get permission kind of from, because it's Presentation Sister yes. Land, it's funded by the Presentation, it's a Presentation Sisters, you know, funded community of life. So you have yes. to get, you, they have to be solely behind you at the beginning. The interesting thing was, though, the land was church land ah. and the, in fact there's a bit of con there was a bit of contest about where the land who the land belonged to later when we sat down with uh, was bishop brennan at mm. the time he was very supportive because he'd built a solar passive house out at wentworth in his early days 
And so he gave us one of our first donations of $500. And we've still got the letter that he wrote to us. So you um, needed that support, really. Oh, if it's, you needed the support from the church. We did. Separate to the presentation sisters. And then we had a certain clergyman in the diocese write a letter into the paper. He envisaged Kay and I walking hand in hand with Bob Brown into the sunset. He was not very happy. We had another person who, at that time, it was quite hard to get religious um, religious education people and particularly people who were capable of religious education coordination, and that was my job. And um, they, they were pretty upset or this, that I was growing broad beans rather than being in the school alleviating the, the difficulties they were in. We presented it to one of the P&C evenings and there were people scared that we were going green mm. and that we might be anti any use of chemicals. I can remember that, particularly Roundup. It was such a new concept uh, the, and for the sisters to be involved with it, it was quite difficult for them to understand we were educators, but we were not. And also anything like that, we were branded greenies. Mm. And greenies were fairly unpopular at that moment, particularly with people in the Wagga region. Wagga is ultra-conservative region, or was. Mm. It's shifting. Mm. And it's shifting with education. So here we were, two of the sisters becoming greenies. And the sisters also started to refer to us as the farmers. We were the farmers. Presented it to the leadership team, but then we got the clearance to keep talking to people and writing documents. And so that document is the one that we eventually presented to what we call our chapter. And this is the Ecological Justice Resource Centre, a project to be established by the Presentation Sisters Wagga Wagga, 1998, by Kay Bryan and Carmel Wallace. Oh, that was the final document. We presented it late 1997. It says that this is the yes. draft, 5th of December, yes. 1997. That's right. And that's what it was originally called, mm. the Ecological Justice Resource Centre. It was, and we called it that because we wanted to tie it into the fact that social justice was at the core of who we were. But later, a couple of our friends in landscaping, one of them was Phil Price, said, for God's sake, get rid of that justice stuff. And Jim Webb said the same. Mm. And I said, why? You know, I couldn't say. They said, look, you're tied up with juvenile justice. And this is something quite different. I'm saying, yeah, but justice is right relationship. Not good marketing. But it wasn't, like. it wasn't good marketing. It, it wasn't the right branding that you it needed to get. It wasn't the right branding, mm. and especially here in Wagga. Mm. So what happened was I was on a trip to um, Canberra with one of the landscapers and he said, let's start dreaming another name. And so we tried everything and then he said, what about Erin Earth, Mount Erin Land? And it's about the earth. And I said, oh, Phil, I think that might be it. It was Phil Pryor and Wayne Fox. And so Erin Earth it became. And Erin 
also tied into the sisters' Irish heritage. Yes, because ex- quickly explain for people who have who are listening that have no association with, you know, the presentation sisters or or Erin. Like, uh, what is Erin? Erin or Ireland, mm. and our sisters were founded in 1775, and they were founded to educate mainly the kids on the streets. There was enormous poverty in Cork at the time and also to educate at that time was even a capital punishment um, situation. Uh, That time Ireland was totally owned by the English Mm. and the, the English's best way of keeping the Irish ground down was to have them not educated. They were allowed to go to the English charter schools, but there's no way the Irish stubbornness would have thought of that, the Irish... and Yeah, it's tied into Irish politics. I just think that's an interesting little history to have. What's that? I know we could talk about that for hours and that and that's not what this is about, but... Um, what was that statement in the garden as you were reading it, as we were reading it today and it talked about the, the brief history of the sisters and Nano Nagel, the founder of the Presentation Sisters, mm-hmm. what did she say that she educated the, that, that main kind of mantra that's, that's given to, it, it, it was on the hall, it was a really good sentence about. The best way to move people out of poverty is to give them an education. And the best way to do that is to educate your women. I mean, that that wasn't Nano. That's my throwing. <laughs> that idea that like this is the whole air and earth. Now that we're calling it that, we'll move away to the mm. new branding. The whole air and earth, like what you were doing, was was it was re- it was revolutionary at the time. You know, you faced opposition, and it was guided by the principle. Do you, do you believe it was guided by the principles of Nano Nagel in in some way? Oh yes, and yes. how? Yep. But the concept of justice now involves the whole of the community of life, and that's the shift. What happened at that chapter when we presented mm. the document to our utter amazement? It went through 100%. And what they did, the sisters gave us a ute, which was partly funded by Toyota, that's another story, and $10,000 seed money. And then we were told to go ahead and get it on its way. And that just happened to be in 1998, which when the, the sisters were going to move out of Mount Erin, out to where they are out in Ashmont, mm. at a place we now call Nagel Terrace. So Kay and I came back from Dremoyne and Canberra to Wagga and we lived with the sisters. And then in October, all the sisters moved out. And Kay and I were to live in that building for 12 months and we lived there for the next five years. So it was just you and Kay and in the that boarders. whole building. Oh, the boarders were over the boarding the... school, but we were in the convent. We slept upstairs at either end of the huge convent. And what did you think of that living arrangement? It was a bit weird, but all that time we were so busy planning. We also had to get a bit of cred. So we started Enviro Sport, 
over at Mount Erin at the time. And every Wednesday afternoon, the students were given an option of doing enviro sport uh, as one of the alternatives of the other sports. And so we would take 25 and we taught them composting and veggie growing and we gave them some sort of philosophical underpinning for what we were doing. And that was a great success. Yes. The kids were terrific. So we did that for some years. Had a hole been dug on the site by this stage? No. 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 This is 1998. Yes. The first hole that was dug on the site was the end of 2001. So this was three years planning Envirosport, which was not held in the garden, was it held? Um, it was held, yeah, it was held on, oh, yes, in the backyard of the convent and it was sort of, part of it was held on. So we taught them how, we made up compost bays and yes. taught them how to measure temperatures for compost and gave them all the dynamics and did lots and lots of big charts like... Oh, yes, come and show me a chart. Absolutely. Oh, we did lots and lots of charts on composting and we started, oh. you know, the... These are the days before PowerPoints and um, we started... A new cosmopology, a new cosmo... cosmo. Hang on, old cosmology and new cosmology. Ah, this is what you were talking about. Yes, and then understanding Earth, the Gaia principle. Uh, We started running workshops around in various places as well for parish groups. Right. And lots of rotary talking. And, I mean, and how did some people respond to the change of man and God at the top to being in a web? With great difficulty. I actually took this from a book by a man who was an MSC priest and, um, yes, his books were forbidden. Yes. Yes. So there was a lot of angst. I mean, you don't need to tell me this because this is a public podcast, so you can refuse to answer the question. But like, was this part of it of your own of of a change of your own relationship with? Oh yes. What was happening yeah. is, yeah, my whole theological understanding of God, my understanding, yeah, everything was shifting. Mm. It was huge and it it was also not long after that that a number of our sisters went overseas to study and this was a whole ferment, particularly in America and Europe. And so they came home with all this new understanding and it used to get called the new story. And I can remember when they'd come home, I'd been doing it for about 10 years. And I I used to struggle with new story. I was thinking, no, it's a very old story. Yes. This is a 14 billion year story. So what does it do when you put a Christian story of 2,000 years and then you put the literal understandings of scripture where some Anglican, I can't remember his name, 
Um, he'd calculated that we'd been around for six and a half thousand years. Everything's created oh. in, you know, that first that first Genesis story. Yes. Everything's created in seven days. What had happened to me was back in the 70s, I went with the other sisters to a Eucharistic Congress in Melbourne. Uh, I think it was 1973. And all of us young sisters were exposed to these fabulous lecturers from all over the world. There were people like Nebrada, they were mainly Jesuits, mm. people like Nebrada, Amala Pavidas, and we heard scripture and theology like we'd never heard before. And we came home enthused because suddenly a lot of my questions started to make sense. Mm. And with Sister Benedicta, who said to me, I want you to talk at the PNF and tell them what you heard. So I did. And then what happened was, yeah, that had already broadened a whole lot of my thinking. Of course it had. So you um, were already, mm, from an early age, this had been fer fermenting away. It had. I was becoming rapidly becoming an atheist back there before <laughs> yeah. I went to study theology. What in the foundation years, if you have a look at the roles of you and Kay, what was your job? What were your main roles and responsibilities in Air and Earth? I understood the environmental side of it. And although I didn't end up doing my science degree, I had a natural science savvy yeah. and I could grow anything. And um, I had done a lot of reading. So my job was to get across the need for some sort of environmental education, sustainability education. In the 1990s, I had heard a lecture by CSIRO, it was, on climate change. And this is late 90s. I was so shocked and everything they predicted has come about. It's amazing. And then in the early 2000s, CSIRO again, and they brought stakeholders from all over this region and they had us dreaming ahead 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And that shocked me because the implications of climate change that we are now facing were actually laid Correct. out on paper. And, and how, every, how are they all tracking so far? Much quicker than we expected. No. Uh, and it's interesting that back there at that same late 19, the late 1990s, it was... Pope John Paul II talking about the catastrophic place we were going to. And the, what I couldn't understand, you can put this in, mm. what I couldn't understand was how what was being said by the leaders of our Catholic Church, the popes, never filtered down to the local pulpit. Just couldn't understand it. Uh, and I still struggle with it. It's like there's I, other forces at play stopping yes. that. Yes. Like I would love to hear a homily on the environment. Um, but 
at the same time, what was happening for me was I was myself developing a rich spirituality and the spirituality tied into oh, just the shock that my DNA is shared by Gus over there sitting in that chair, about 80% of it, that I'm related to a cucumber, that we all carry this amazing story that goes from Big Bang, we'll leave out multiverses and all of that, that's because the scientists are still struggling with any of that, but to think particularly the stardust story The Montessori world had picked this up beautifully and we started to use it at Air and Earth. And I realised that this should be something given to children when they're five and six. And how we address it is simply, um, we've never understood how God made the world, but the scientists have shown us how. And that amazing story of the development of the supernova and the fact that they die like a torch runs down and that when they die, they gift us with this amazing stuff. This is what we tell five-year-olds, that churns in their stomach until eventually the supernova explodes and all this stardust is scattered across our universe and the stardust is really the elements of the periodic table. And that stardust has created our own star, which is the sun, and all our planets and we get the children to... Imagine what the stardust has created. And so they come up with dinosaurs and kittens and rivers and mountains and all of that. And then the big learning is, okay, if we're all made of stardust, what does that mean? And that means that we're all related. We're all connected. And when you get a sense of that, that changes your whole way of being. And it also takes us back into, at the core of all Indigenous people, was their connection. I remember being blown away by, with Eddie Kneebone, talking about how the, our Indigenous people came to understand their totems. And that was mind-blowing. He described it as the pregnant woman experiencing for the first time the child kicking in her womb. And with that, going back to the women elders and saying, this has just happened to me. And the women elders saying, where did it happen? And the pregnant young woman would say, in this particular spot where this particular animal and that tree and all of that happened... And that became the totem. Now, that blew me away. That my, I, I, I'm speaking as an Anglo-Saxon Celtic woman. 
But that was how Eddie Kneebone explained it to me at that time. And I imagine there are lots of other explanations. Mm. Now, let's talk about you've got the go ahead. You've done the planning. When we were in the garden before, you, you've spoken about how you got the community on board. I'd like you to walk me through um, the first the first building of The Air first step. Oh. After... We'd been running Envirosport for a period of time and we're still living up in the convent. The sisters' leadership team that I wasn't part of then came to the decision that we could go ahead and build, use the site down there and we also had Bishop Brennan's permission and we could make it a permaculture site. And that meant that... We had to start raising finance and that's when we started going around to all the different rotaries and also getting physical help from the people who were part of Rotary. We also wrote to all the male religious congregations that were in the um, phone directory and we had the most amazing thing, things happen. Uh, one of them was this, just a check inside an envelope. And uh, this is for your use for this new um, enterprise. And it was the De La Salle brothers. And it was a check for $16,000. And we were in utter shock. Uh, we had to, oh, like, get get the land surveyed, Mm. we had to reallocate the fence lines and Wagga City Council were amazing. It was Brian Short at the time and he was tremendously supportive uh, because from the very beginning on the board, we tried to have all the stakeholders of air and earth represented Mm. and we had an ex officio place for a member of a Wagga City Council staff so that we could be very tied into them as a support group for them. But it was, um, it went both ways. Mm. Through the Rotary, uh, people like Mick Mullins Senior, the Burgess Concrete, I remember needing manure and we got a 20-tonne truck came from Griffith from Barters but we didn't realise that in amongst the manure are lots of dead chooks. So that pile was left and so the poor neighbours suffered there for a while. Yeah. How long did it take to actually build the garden as we see it now, the to really the official went right up opening, two thousand and six. Yes, nine years in the making. Oh yes, mm. we had the opening in two thousand and six. Um, we moved into the house in July the second, two thousand and two. The first sod was turned, two thousand and one, in on presentation day. Um, we had four trees that were a problem. And we didn't know how we'd get approval from the council to remove those four trees. And the day before we turned the first sod, we had a massive electric storm and God removed the trees. 
Are you serious? I actually serious? removed all the trees. That really happened. And, there, and we needed <laughs> we needed the money to remove the trees. And what happened was um, a particular tree fell and hit a window over in the convent and the insurance covered the trees. We needed $4,000. And Mick Mullins came and looked at and, and we looked at the, the window that was smashed and all the rest and he said, how much is this all going to cost? And... He said, well, it'll be covered by insurance, $4,000. <laughs> oh, that's a great story. So the trees were removed and you could, you could, you could start work. They were the right trees. <laughs> I've got a question about that nine years in the making. A very long and patient journey, I observe. What sustained you during those nine years? Just a belief that this is what was needed. Uh, we were both passionate about it. The other thing that sustained us, I guess, coming out of a tradition of Presentation Sisters prayer spirituality, um, that sustained us. And the other thing that sustained us was the amazing support of our sisters, support of the Wagga community in the most surprising ways. In 1998-99... Jeff Woodgate, who was probation and parole, came up and said, look, I've got a favour to ask you. We need to get some work for these people at weekends. So every Saturday we started uh, supervising young men who did a lot of the physical work in mm. those days. And then we had some men come with great experience and we had a couple of business people in Wagga who'd retired and really from back those days it was Terry Harvey from Piper and Harvey who um, helped supervise. Mm. So I made lots and lots of morning teas mm. and afternoon <laughs> teas and then Men volunteers started to come through the volunteer centre. I don't think it still exists. Yeah, right. But there was a volunteer centre down next to the that elderly citizens complex in Takata Street. Oh, yes, yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. And um, so they sent men to us who had retired or oh. been had injuries in work. And at one stage we had... A man who had built abattoirs, a man who was in charge of supervising abattoirs, men who worked for butchers, and we morning tea was a whole series of very gory stories. <laughs> what I animals. still remember <laughs> is listening to the men sharing their stories of how to make sausages. It was a long time before I could eat another sausage. <laughs> I learned a lot of inside stories. <laughs> and then, though, was later, it was about 2006, just after we'd had the formal opening, that we started to get a couple of women coming and asking if they could be volunteers. And that changed the whole nature of, yes, because we used to, um, we decided to have open days. Mm. And we had them 
seven or eight a year, which was huge every month. And it was wonderful having the women with us because we could send them on a woman walk around the site and all the scraps of paper would disappear Mm. and they knew how to weed. Men weren't terribly good at weeders. They were great builders, Mm. concreters. Are there any other key people or partners that you need to mention or that you want to mention in, in the building stage? Particularly those men volunteers who came all day Thursday and we used to give them a a meal of boarding school leftovers and it was a full meal in the middle of the day to sustain them for the afternoon. (laughs) Later, the volunteer time became from 9 o'clock until 12 o'clock. But it was those men who slogged. Uh, They were just wonderful. And also... I think particularly Mick Mullins and young Mick who provided all of their machinery, mm-hmm. the excavators, the bulldozers. I'm just thinking one of the big shifts we saw mm. was the shift in biodiversity on site. Okay, tell me about that. Once we started to vegetate the site mainly with Wagga species, but not all. And once we got the little mini dam put in, Mm. in the beginning we had magpies, crows, um, blackbirds, and within about four or five years we had 40 species of bird on site. And the shift in total biodiversity was enormous Mm. and that was, yeah. A key achievement. Yes. In fact, we aimed at the four things. The first thing was about being water-wise. The second was conserving energy. The third one was about biodiversity. And the fourth one was about forming community with the humans on site. And do you think you've achieved all of those goals? I think those that they have, yes. There have been different stages along the journey. In the beginning, of course, we were all volunteers. Those early days too, we had a group of retired teachers. So we did quite a bit of work along the line somewhat of Montessori with school groups. Mm. Then in 2012, Mm. when the sisters realised that we need, because there was a period when I was there by myself, um, because Kay was tied up with the leadership team. Mm. And then it was the first time we paid staff and Marg McKinley joined us and that was wonderful. But the shift, by that time we had 40 or more volunteers coming and we had a whole period there of in-servicing volunteers. So we ran a whole series of workshops and that was particularly around the shift in cosmology. And we started running book groups and that became very oriented towards adults, some school groups. And then 
I moved off-site because John Goonan and myself started to run workshops for primary schools within the diocese. Ah, in right. The so that was coming back to children again. Coming back to children again. But the workshops were done for teachers. So we ran workshops all over the diocese. And that was particularly looking at the God question and cosmology shift. Mm. And they were great. And then as we started to employ staff, we've gone through all different stages because as you employ different staff, you have different gifts brought to sight yes. and they have to work out what part they are able to use yes. for education. Tell me about your, your favourite spot oh. at Erin Earth and why. That became a favourite spot after a group of TAFE women built that seat around the tree. It had been there about six years and at this period I was living on site by myself. Kay had moved out and I was totally by myself with two dogs and that was my escape place. I used to go down and sit under that tree in the afternoon as the sun was setting, me and the two dogs, and it would be just heavenly quiet. And I just took in the beauty of the whole site and an occasional train, and it was my lifesaver, that spot. <laughs> 